0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Britta Ager about her book titled The Scent of Ancient Magic, um, just published in 2023 by the University of Michigan Press. This book, as the title suggests, explores the complex interconnection of scent and magic in the Greek world, and the Roman world, um, drawing on all sorts of very cool sources, ancient literature, modern study of the senses, um, ancient medicinal and botanical understandings to investigate how ancient magicians used scents as part of their smells, as kind of ways of understanding the world. Um, This book does not itself smell like anything, um, but has so many very fascinating stories of scent and descriptions of scent in it. Um, Britta, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about it. I'm really
0: excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Before we dive into all of the scents, though, and all of the magic, um, could you introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
0: Sure. Um, So I did a PhD in classics and I used to teach in the field. And um, I've done research in ancient magic, ancient religion, uh, ancient agriculture, which is more connected to those other two things than you might think. And I started noticing that um, in looking at ancient magical material, there was this very common equation of sense and magic. They kept cropping up in the same texts. And eventually, I started to realize that scent was kind of being used as a metaphor for magic in various ways. And I think this makes a lot of sense on a a sort of instinctive level, where, you know, scent is this sort of mysterious and yet everyday phenomenon where we can't see scent, we can't touch it, get a hold of it, and yet we know it affects us profoundly. Scents can make us nauseated or hungry or, you know, we, we get that flashbulb memory when we smell something that reminds us of a memory from years ago. Uh, so it's this really profound and yet you know very common everyday phenomenon. And I think, you know, that sort of intangibility but powerful um, aspect to scent made it a really hand useful uh, mental model for the way people imagine magic to work. So as I noticed this in a variety of ancient texts, I also kind of realized nobody had talked about this. And I, I thought it was very interesting. And I wanted to, uh, I thought I was going to write an article on it. I, I thought I'd you know, do this nice little self-contained project on it. And then it uh, eventually turned into something much longer.
1: That is not the first time I've heard. I thought this was just going to be an article. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) And yet here we are. Um, So I want to pick up on this idea as scent as a mental model. Um, I thought that was really cool for thinking about magic, going beyond just the idea of, well, of course, scent is relevant. It's one of the senses. Can you tell us about this idea of it being a mental model for magic, and especially when we think about the world of the Greeks and Romans?
0: Sure. Um, And yeah, I I think it's worth um, taking that step back before we come to them in particular to say this really is a worldwide phenomenon. When you start looking at the connections between scent and magic, we see this worldwide in all sorts of different cultures across many time periods, that it just seems to be this gut level reaction that ghosts, gods, the supernatural, spells, um, share something with that lived experience of scent being something powerful but intangible um, in the world of the greeks and romans in particular um, like we find this on both a, a conscious and an unconscious level um, I, I was talking in the book about both what real magicians did which we can certainly get into in more detail um, real magicians who we know through texts like preserved spell books from greco-roman egypt um, they used scent very liberally in their rituals um, for a bunch of reasons that I'd love to talk about. Um, but we also see uh, authors of imaginative literature using scent in very deliberate ways as a metaphor for magic. Um, and that gets very interestingly gendered as well. And you know, this equation between Scent and power, uh, scent and the supernatural, um, the supernatural and scent. It, it's something that we find in both Greek and Roman culture and in other ancient Mediterranean cultures. Um, like there's this strong equation between scent and the gods in ancient Egypt. Um, and it, it just seems to be a very human thing cross culturally.
1: Hmm, intriguing. Lots to get into now that we have kind of that background. Um, this this to me seemed kind of almost like a silly question and then i was really pleased to find it in the book because i was really curious about it um obviously scent like we can't we don't have archive archives of scent right the way that we do for other sorts of things um so what was a good scent what was a bad smell in these time periods and and
0: how could we possibly know I, scent really is kind of the forgotten sense in a lot of ways. Um, And we actually have the Greeks to to blame for that kind of in our mental model of how the world works. Um, Ancient uh, uh, scientists and philosophers like Aristotle, for example, um, prioritized scent as kind of like the the lowest, most bestial of the senses as opposed to uh, sight and sound, which were sort of the higher, more refined senses. Um, But at the same time, the literature of the past is full of discussion about scent. Often in a sort of less structured, less deliberate way than we hear a discussion about, say, music or painting or other types of art. But at the same time, we do get a lot of ancient impressions of scent so as for what's a good scent and a bad scent and how we know um, we have a lot of ancient reactions to different scents recorded so people talk about perfumes that they think are beautiful smelling um, and you know a lot of these would be very familiar to us so for example lily perfume rose perfume things that we would definitely say oh yes that's you know something I would consider wearing as a nice scent um, people in the past had the same reaction and it's it's interesting interesting here because scent is, there's some broad similarities in how humans react to different scents. Humans generally like sort of sweet flowery smells like those lily and rose perfumes, and humans generally dislike sort of rotting smells, uh, where those seem to be baked in biological responses to things in our environment, um, sort of saying, you know, don't put that in your mouth or whatever but at the same time beyond those really broad responses our responses to scent are very very individual and so you know we find a, a wide variety of scents in antiquity which correspond to sort of those big categories um, you know people like spicy smells people like flowery smells we get for example um, a lot of discussions of the way temples smell in antiquity where visitors to temples, you know, mention them as being full of the scent of incense smoke um, in Greek and Egyptian and Roman culture and others. Um, And that's really the the sort of sensory memory or one of the sensory memories that they take away from their visit to that temple. Um, So sometimes people say very explicitly, you know, this is a good scent or this is a bad scent. There's a poem I'm thinking of here by the Latin poet Marshall. It's, It's this really sort of nasty misogynistic poem where he's talking about how terrible a woman smells as a way to insult her. And the things that he compares her to are things like, oh, she smells like a goat. She smells like a jar of stale urine that somebody broke in the street and so on. Um, um, so, you know, sometimes people are telling us very explicitly, like, I like the scent or I don't like the scent. But then um, other times we just sort of look at what people mention eating or burning for incense. Um, the the magical papyri, those spell books from Egypt that I mentioned, they're full of recipes for things like incenses that magicians are supposed to use as part of their, uh, their rituals, both good-smelling incenses and bad-smelling incenses. And in those cases, we can kind of tell which is supposed to smell good and which is supposed to smell bad according to probably just what do they contain. Like an incense that contains dog droppings is Probably not supposed to smell good, but also what they're being used for. You use a nice smelling incense if you're trying to do a spell with a good outcome, and you're supposed to use a bad smelling incense if you're doing something sort of more hostile and illicit.
1: Hmm. Okay. That makes a lot of sense um, and is a fascinating kind of insight into both what people thought then, but also kind of how one excavates that now. Um, <laughs> and
0: actually, um, the it's interesting as somebody trying to reconstruct the scent world of the past, because there's a real temptation to sort of reconstruct literally what existed in an ancient environment and then kind of react to it the way that we would react to it and not necessarily the way that the ancients would react to it, which can be two different things. Like I I mentioned the smell of temples and um, you know, incense wreathed or filled with incense is a, a very common epithet in Greek poetry for temples. This is how they remember their religious spaces as sweet smelling. At the same time there's been all of this research in you know modern um, scholarship on what ancient temples actually smelled like and, and the religious experience. And I mean to our senses, they must have been pretty terrible smelling. Um, We're we're dealing with a culture in which animal sacrifice is one of the basic acts of worship. You think about, uh, you know, what a Greek temple would have smelled like in July with, you know, um, cows being sacrificed and offal and excrement and blood. And like our reaction to that is, oh, God, it must have smelled absolutely foul. But that's not how the Greeks remember their temples. Um, And I mean, we can think about our own experience here. I think this is an example that I used in the book where if you think about the way that we we conceptualize holidays, you, I mean, if you think about Christmas, for example, Here's a holiday where even if you don't celebrate it, you, there's this sort of broad cultural understanding of like what senses go along with this holiday because it's, you know, pervasive in advertising and TV and so on. So you might list Christmas as smelling like, you know, warm cookies and pine and cinnamon and all of these good things. And I mean, your lived experience of Christmas may also involve a lot of like sweaty winter boots and a wet dog and uh, car exhaust as you you go shopping and so on. But that's not the important part as we remember the holiday. So I I think it's... important for us not to be too literal when we look at the past and and reconstruct literally, okay, what sense do we know are present, but also to think about like what is what is the cultural experience that people are kind of curating and remembering of a a particular space or occasion or person.
1: So That links really nicely to something else I wanted to ask you about that you've teased a little bit already, the idea that studying ancient magic and ancient agriculture might actually have more Mm. in common (laughs) than we'd think today. Um, Because you talk about in the book the, quote, conscious and unconscious equations, which is a fascinating phrase in this context, to understand what ancient Greeks were doing with medicine and botany making links between power, including, like, divine power, medicine, Mm -hmm. and scent. And looking at that today, as you've just said, you know, we might not see there being any sort of equation between medicine and weeds in the ground and magic, and yet there is very much in this world. So can you tell us about some
0: of those conscious and unconscious equations? Sure. Um, So, starting with um, magic and agriculture, because I think that's a a great sort of everyday example. I actually wrote my dissertation entirely on magic used by Roman farmers, um, where there's really a lot. But at the same time, the authors who record this for us um, are like these are upper class educated men, because this is whose words we generally have preserved from antiquity. And it's clear that for a lot of them, they feel like these traditional remedies they've been taught, which can include little spoken spells or sort of herbal remedies or charms, um, things like amulets that you can tie onto say a sick ox or little procedures you can do to make your crops grow better or keep your animals healthy. Like these authors clearly feel that these things work on some level. But at the same time, they want to present themselves as these like educated men of science who are kind of above all of that superstitious nonsense that the peasants practice. So a lot of what they're doing is they're taking these like, this very traditional folklore, and they're kind of saying, okay, like, the common people believe that this is, quote-unquote, magic, but we men of science actually understand that, that this is a type of science that obeys natural laws if you just are you know, su- sufficiently educated in the topic. So they're really looking for ways to brush up, you know, the this charm that they've learned where you tie, say, a turnip onto uh, a sick person and that will help them get better. Um, and I sort of brush that up and explain it through, you know, they're, they're breathing in particles from this plant and, and it actually has this medicinal effect. So, and that's very common for. I shouldn't just say ancient science. It's it's very common for science in general to kind of look for an explanation for why something that we already believe works, works, um, and to kind of hold on to the remedy and just come up with a, a different, more satisfying explanation for it. And there's a lot of these Uh, You sort of folk charms, folk remedies in the ancient agricultural handbooks. Um, And this makes sense. People were living often at um, a a subsistence level where if your crops failed, you were going to be going hungry that year. Um, People really look for ways to ensure success as much as possible because their survival depends on it. So anything you can do um, on your farm to keep you, yourself, your family, your people healthy, um, to keep your animals alive and productive, to keep your farm uh, growing and running well, um, you know, if you think it'll work, you'll do it. And we see this as well in the world of medical literature, uh, where, you know, very often we do get You know, authors that we might now categorize as early medical authors looking to the folklore of their day and saying, well, you know, I think this traditional remedy actually works. If you tie this particular plant onto a person or if they if you, um, you know, make it into a a smoke and they breathe it in, um, then. This will cure what uh, whatever ails them. But we also know that while they are presenting themselves as part of the medical profession, there's also this whole class of people called root cutters and other similar terms um, who are practicing medicine in a kind of more, like... Yeah, folkloric manner, um, where there's this uh, sort of common ancient knowledge that certain plants are good magically, they're good medically, um, they're just powerful. And you can use them in different ways. Some people say, you know, we'll, we'll make this into a potion you can drink. Other people say, you know, we'll put this under your pillow while you sleep, and it will cure you. And we know that people we would sort of classify as like doctors and scientists are in dialogue with these other people. And these these two groups are um, starting in the fifth century or so uh, in Greece, really defining themselves in opposition to each other as sort of competing claimants to special knowledge. Uh, and the whole idea of medicine as a profession is kind of created to distinguish these sort of more upper class medical practitioners from these uh, usually depicted as more lower class, um, you know, village and and itinerant uh, professionals who offer a variety of services from, you know, making medicine out of plants to exorcism.
1: So I was really intrigued by these root cutters um, because we have kind of passed down to us an idea of what a magician is and obviously a doctor, but we don't have root cutters now. Um, and kind of in that description, you've given us a bunch of reasons kind of why not. Um, but given that their work was in a lot of ways sort of on the ground, in the dirt with the plants,
0: why were they seen as dangerous? So the the profession that we know as raised tomoy or root cutters um there's a couple of other terms here, like herb sellers, and um, it, it seems like there is a pretty lively world of people with these little niche specialties that has been kind of lost, and they, they've all been lumped together uh, in our surviving literature to a large extent. Um, so we hear about people who seem to be like specialty plant hunters this is one of the reasons the doctors talk about them because they uh, they're often sourcing materials from these people um but then we also get people who are closer to circus performers and pharmacists um and like we we hear about for example uh, a fellow who has a stall in the athenian agora uh and who sort of puts on shows where he he drinks poison and uh sort of sits around uh, and the audience sort of waits to see if he'll die or not. And he's apparently built up a, a tolerance to this. Um, so like we seem to have a, a wide variety of people ranging from showmen to herbalists to religious professionals where you know, a lot of these people kind of shade into, um, you know, people who can offer you uh, ritual practices like exorcism or other things like cursing your enemies. Um, and, It looks like they all kind of shade into each other. There's a couple of different reasons why they're they're dangerous. For one thing, they work with plants which are considered powerful. And a lot of these plants are thought to need special care and handling, particularly when you go to collect them. So we have a wide variety of rituals preserved from antiquity in which people say things like, okay, before you dig up helibor or peony or uh, other plants which are considered Considered very efficacious, you need to do things like draw a circle around them in the dirt with a sword and say a prayer and burn some incense. Um, and if you don't do these things correctly, of a wide variety of bad things might happen to you. Um, the plant itself is so dangerous that it may kill you when you pull it out of the ground. Um, the gods may be angry with you. Uh, the plant itself is sometimes seen as sort of sentient and, and may get its revenge on you if you're not careful. So these are people who work with dangerous plants, have dangerous expertise, and, I mean, the line between curing somebody with medicine and poisoning them is very fine. Um, And we do have a number of counts from antiquity of people who try to make either medicine or things like love potions and wind up poisoning somebody by accident. Um, And that's something we can certainly talk more about, where, you know, where do we, uh, where do we get ancient accusations of magic being used. So that's one answer. Um, these are people with dangerous expertise who are working with dangerous materials. And sort of the the more meta view of this is that um, I mentioned that sort of doctors, medical professionals came to be seen as higher class, like the educated variety of them. And a lot of these people who we're talking about are lower class, usually illiterate or partially illiterate, um, usually seen as lower on the social scale and it's inherently threatening to a lot of people the idea of this type of potent power in the hands of people who in other aspects of of ancient society are much less powerful um who are not supposed to have power if you're uh, an ancient elite so and and that's True of a lot of ancient magic, that magic is often a fundamentally countercultural phenomenon where it offers it offers a promise of being able to affect the world, of being able to do things that you wouldn't otherwise, um, often in situations in which you are otherwise powerless, whether you're a farmer who... You know, can't affect the weather but desperately needs to and may turn to a spell, or if you're somebody on the lowest rungs of ancient society and you know you're not going to get justice for um, a crime committed against you in the normal way of things, um, or you're a desperate sick person who knows that the doctors don't have anything to offer you, you know, these are all situations in which people turn to more supernatural remedies, um, hoping for an answer that they don't find elsewhere in their society
1: all right i can see why that would all seem pretty dangerous um and of course it's intriguing to think about kind of which plants were the ones that if you pull them out of the ground even just pulling them out of the ground was in itself dangerous how do you even think of that
0: yeah and some of them are not what we would expect um for example the peony is considered very dangerous by the greeks they actually say don't pull a peony out of the ground yourself, Um, get a dog and tie a rope to the peony and to the dog and sort of lure the dog into pulling it out of the ground for you. And and then the dog will supposedly drop dead at the moment that the roots pull out. So yeah, this is, this is worrying. Um, That's intense. It's intense. And then at other times it's plants that we might see as very common and normal. Uh, like, one thing we may want to talk about in more detail is garlic, which we, you know, generally think of as a tasty kitchen ingredient. But, uh, you know, thinking about the, the folklore of garlic, um, the, the Greeks considered a, a very powerful and potentially dangerous plant.
1: Okay, you definitely have to tell
0: us more about that. What did the <laughs> ancient Greeks
1: and Romans think about garlic?
0: Okay, so, you know, if... If we think about the supernatural and garlic, what is the the one thing that you know garlic is good against, even in modern culture? Vampires? Vampires. So this is actually like the most common, well-known today piece of a much larger body of folklore in um, in Europe where... Um, allium plants, all of those nice, sort of sulfurous smelling plants like garlic and leek and chives, are considered, for whatever reason, to be good against the supernatural, witches, vampires, monsters of all sorts. Um, and there's it, this, this is a, a very active body of folklore in ancient Greece and Rome, where, on the one hand, um, you know, garlic is something people eat. Uh, it's here we get into class again, it's considered a particularly lower class food. Um, we get uh, the, the Latin poet Horace um, complaining about the fact that he was served garlic at dinner. Uh, he describes it as sort of a, a nasty trick by the host who should know that his delicate intestines can't handle peasant food like that. But um, at the same time, you know, very commonly eaten, even if Horace complains about it. But at the same time, you know, it's this incredibly powerful smelling plant which people thought was good against the supernatural in various ways. Um, so people uh, say, you know, garlic is a great charm against witches. Um, there's a, a poem, for example, that says, if you wanna protect babies, garlic is a good way to, to keep witches away from them. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's considered a, a great prophylactic against a variety of potential monsters and boogeymen. And at the same time, um, I, I think that um, so we also see garlic being used essentially, or, or at least later authors thought it was being used as a charm against witches in uh, some of our earliest surviving Greek literature, uh, the Odyssey, where there's this episode in the Odyssey where Odysseus um, and his his crew stop at the island, um, which they don't know this yet, but it's inhabited by the witch Circe, and so Odysseus sends off half of his crew to investigate the smoke they see rising from the middle of this island, um, and his crew crew finds the house of Circe and she welcomes them in and offers them food and drink like a good Greek hostess, and then she turns them into pigs, as she does. Um, So Odysseus eventually goes to search for his missing men, uh, and the god Hermes stops him along the way and says sort of spoiler, um, you're heading for Circe's house, she's going to try to turn you into a pig like she's already done to your crew, take this plant. And Hermes gives Odysseus a plant that the poem calls Molu, um, which Homer specifically says is what the gods call it. Um, this special plant, it, it, this is not something, like, it, it's a mythical plant. Um, we We don't have an actual plant in ancient Greek that everybody agreed was called Molu or molly as we would say in english so odysseus takes this plant and he carries it with him and it prevents when he gets to circe's house he prevents her from changing him into a pig the way she has done to his men so here you know this magical plant that hermes has given him is a great charm against this witch now the reason i bring this up in relation to garlic is because later authors got really interested in the question of okay if the gods call this magical plant Molu, what do we call it? What is the real plant that we could find that Homer was talking about? And they came up with a couple of different answers. Um, Molu is described in the Odyssey as having um, a white flower and a dark root uh, with a sort of big bulb on it. And um, the ancients looked around for bulb plants that could fit this description. And Garlic was one of the favorite answers that they came up with. That this, you know, magical plant that can keep a witch off must be garlic. And, I mean, that's a really interesting equation of looking at a piece of ancient literature and saying, okay, what in our experience could this map onto? Um, you know, what is, what is the real story behind this myth? And such was garlic's reputation. It, it seemed like a really good candidate, both from the physical description and from the effect of the plant for lying behind this mythical uh, flower in Homer.
1: Okay, definitely going to go look at the garlic in a jar in the fridge a little bit differently um, after this conversation. I think a lot of other people will too. Um, moving away then from root cutters, moving away from uh, plants as the kind of subjective magical sense for a second, um, the book does have magicians. Now, I admit these are not exactly the magicians I initially imagined in my head. Uh, there's a particular thing going on the magical papyrus tradition. Who, who were these magicians and uh, what were they doing with scent?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, actually, who were these magicians is an active question in classics um, because we don't really they don't tell us a lot about themselves. Um, we have these ancient scrolls which um, survive, which are recipe books for, okay, how do you do different rituals? And they are very, like, they're very much recipe books where they tell you, okay, here's your instructions for setting up your ritual, here's the words you need to say, here's the incense you need to burn, there's a lot of little recipes for things like incense that you need to make ahead of time, Um, you know, here's what you should expect from these, um, you know, what, what you should expect the effect of these spells to be. Um, and, um, even calling them books of magic is a little bit contentious because like some of them some of the stuff in them are clearly like what we would call spells. So there there's one, for example, to make your boss stop being angry with you, or there's one to curse your enemies. Um, But a lot of them, the people using them probably would have described more as like private religious rituals, where very often what they're trying to do is to become an initiate of a particular God. And so they're trying to carry out a little private religious ceremony at their house in which they, um, Often invite the god to come and speak with them, um, and we're talking about a variety of deities here—Apollo um, and Selene—and um, uh, depending on what period, we get texts mentioning angels. Um, and you know, who who is actually doing these um, is. A fascinating question because these texts are really comprised of a lot of different cultural traditions. Um, They're found from, like, we know that they were used widely in the ancient world, but they're preserved for us primarily from the Roman period of ancient Egypt. And looking at those books that we have, um, it seems clear that the people using them are going to be largely bilingual. Um, They're going to know... uh, probably ancient Egyptian, and Greek, and potentially other languages as well. Um, Some of these texts show influences from Jewish traditions, later on Christian traditions, um, other Near Eastern religions, um, as well as Latin and Greek culture, so you're, you're getting really this mix. Um, what we can say about the magicians just sort of inferring from the texts, is that they seem to be largely educated and relatively well off men, largely, um, potentially women as well. Some of the texts do mention female magicians, but um, we, we can tell this because a lot of the rituals involved would have required expensive ingredients um, a fair amount of time and privacy, which you know, busier working people in more crowded houses would not have, um, and a high degree of literacy in often multiple languages. So we assume that these magicians are sort of more more upper class, sort of practicing, um, you know, e- either professional or amateur magicians um, who uh, are interested enough in these procedures to really spend a lot of money and time on them. Huh.
1: Too bad they didn't leave any, like, you know, here's our list of members and why we do this.
0: I know. And actually it, we know that a lot of these books existed, um, but there were various purges of magicians and, uh, and books. So we do hear about events where, you know, in a particular city, people, uh, you know, the authorities gather up magical books and make a point of burning them um, to try to get rid of some of this um it's believed that uh, a lot of these surviving spell books may actually be from one particular magician's library so our view of ancient magic may be in some ways very skewed by like one person's personal collection but at the same time like some of the the shorter texts are often things like tiny tiny little scrolls that were rolled up and worn inside metal lockets as amulets so you know, a, a lot of people had access to this type of magic, even if they couldn't necessarily practice it themselves. You could go to somebody who would write you out an amulet against a fever or write a curse for you. We have a lot of those. Um, or, you know, do other sort of uh, magical procedures for you, even if you yourself were not a magician.
1: So speaking of burning things, um, people doing magic for you, and of course, curses, um, we have to talk about Witches which, you know, we have talked about vampires, we have to talk about witches. And a bunch of the things that we've talked about so far have been in a lot of ways common or relatively common across the Greek into the Roman period. So I was really interested that um, in your book, you talk about how Greeks and Romans both have a conception of witch, but and both have conceptions of witches having sense, that's like a seems to be a key part of what a witch looks like. But Their idea of what a witch smells like, the scents around a witch are actually, in a lot of ways, pretty different. Um, Can you take us through kind of
0: what did the Greeks and the Romans think a witch smelled like? yeah sure. So like we're we're moving here from talking about what real magicians seem to have verifiably done into the world of imaginary literature and you know epic poems and um novels. and I, I kind of want to emphasize at the beginning here that we get this really interesting gender flip as we move from reality into fantasy, where our better evidence for real practicing ancient magicians um, in things like the spell books and historical sources um, talk mainly about male magicians. We know that female ones existed, too. We get the occasional references to them. But it seems to be when we're talking about you know highly educated magicians, mostly guys. When we move into the world of imaginary literature, it's all witches. It's it's largely women who are the you know scary magical practitioners uh, that people want stories about, and you know, again, sort of thinking about social power, I think that's pretty interesting. But yeah, Greeks and Romans had. Originally, very different conceptions of witches. So, when we look at Greek literature, um, you know, we get witches like Circe in the Odyssey, Medea, and a variety of ancient poems. Um, and these are—they're largely demigoddesses. These are humans who have divine parentage in you know their parents or their grandparents, and they are largely you know royalty, very very upper class. Um, And there depicted as generally young, beautiful women, um, and they smell sweet. So they smell like perfume, incense. Um, I'm thinking here, for example, of uh, the great epic poem, The Argonautica, which is where we get the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece um, by uh, Apollonius in in the Greek world. Um, The story is much older than him, but he's sort of the first surviving long account of it. And his Medea, she smells nice. She's a, a young maiden living in her father the king's palace and she serves as a priestess and she smells like the incenses from the temple and like her you know lovely lotions and the herbs that she gathers um and she is her scent is a little bit ambiguous though because she smells also like scary herbs um she's got some dangerous herbs that she gives to jason to he has to to face a variety of trials at at various points. Um, And so she gives him some of those dangerous herbs that we've talked about with the root cutters, because she is very much being depicted as a female root cutter. Uh, And that's what a lot of the early Greek witches are. They're sort of the female equivalents of those male professionals who are dangerous and scary, but They're also sort of beautiful and sexy and alluring, and they smell good. When we get to the Roman world, on the other hand, um, Roman witches starting with the earliest surviving Latin literature, um, they're really the flip side of that. They're old, they're ugly, um, and in early Latin literature, they're they're not particularly scary. They're just kind of ridiculous. They're generally depicted as sort of like drunken old women who are not particularly powerful. until we get to the Roman poet Horace, who really creates for us uh, a fusion of Greek and Roman traditions and gives us this image of the the sort of like really powerful, scary Halloween witch that we're still in, in many ways drawing on today. So Horace creates this witch, Canidia, as a character. And like Roman witches, she's old, she's ugly, her hair is white, her teeth are black, she wears um, dirty, ragged clothing, she has long fingernails that she digs up graves with. It's sort of any horrifying detail that you can imagine. And she smells rotten and like grave dirt and the, the blood of animals and so on. She has snakes in her hair but she's also as powerful as those Roman witches. Um, And that fusion of, you know, the the ridiculous old lower class Roman witch, um, the Roman witches are often depicted as like former prostitutes who kind of aged out of the profession and have now turned to uh, to magic to do love charms. Um, You know, the fusion of that with the really powerful, scary, semi-divine Greek witches it really kicks off a period of uh, witch literature for the Romans in which witches were just kind of a fad during Augustan literature. Suddenly everybody was writing witch poems. And I think, you know, thinking about how literature connects to real life, I think part of the reason for the sudden fascination with witches at that particular moment in Roman history is because we're in a period of civil war. Um, we're, we're talking here about the series of civil wars uh, in which Julius Caesar first uh, takes over Rome as a dictator, uh, gets assassinated, and then his heirs fight it out for another couple of decades. Um, And there were a number of very powerful and to Roman men, very threatening women who were prominent in the politics of this time period. The, The best known of them probably being Cleopatra, who, in addition to being powerful and sensuous and a woman um, is also foreign, so adding another sort of level of otherness to her. Um, And I I see a lot of this witch literature um, and the sort of fascination with, um, you know, old ugly witches who can do love charms to make men fall in love with them, even though they smell disgusting and rotten and are repulsive, sort of overcoming men's better sense, it is in many ways, you know, the, the Roman elite kind of working out their terror of, oh, God, women in politics.
1: So in this idea, especially in this context of kind of suspicions of trickery, um, of fakery, how do, I guess, in some senses, the more mundane, how, that at least now, perfume, makeup, you know, a little bit of color here, a nice smelling thing there. Cleopatra, for example, we think of traditionally as having a lot of makeup on. How does that fit into this context of
0: witchery and suspicion? yeah, and I find this fascinating partly because I feel like we've we've come back around very much to this sort of dialogue in the modern world, um where there's this sort of long standing trope in ancient literature that perfume that cosmetics are quasi magical insofar as they make men do things that they wouldn't otherwise. So, um, for example, uh, an author, Pliny, talks about uh, how a, a woman walks down the street wearing perfume and you know, men just stop what they're doing and their heads turn and, and follow her because of this bewitching scent that she's wearing. And that's very much the attitude to perfume in a lot of the um more gendered ancient literature, um, focusing on women wearing perfume in particular, the idea that magic is, or sorry, that perfume is itself something akin to magic insofar as it alters your mind. It makes you do something that you wouldn't otherwise, maybe fall for a woman that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, and same with cosmetics. And, yeah, you know, here... Uh, he, again we're sort of back around to this idea in the modern world where you get all of these sort of misogynistic complaints about how women are tricking men by wearing cosmetics uh and uh you know this is uh in in some way um you know it, like cheating uh that wearing makeup will trick a guy into falling in love with you when he wouldn't otherwise um and here like a scent is relevant for cosmetics uh, as well because a lot of ancient cosmetics were made with things like rose petals and honey and wood themselves have had a scent and so i think they and perfumes kind of get lumped in together as things that just you know you, you breathe them in and your your good sense deserts you
1: huh interesting and interesting especially to see the kind of modern parallels. so thank you for taking us through those connections um I'd like to, as we come towards the end, sort of go from kind of the, the bad side of scent, the the evil, the scary, to, I don't know, the divine, shall we see? Um, you talk about in the book, we've talked a little bit about temples, um, but there's more in the book about divinity, about gods. Um, and one of the things that I found really interesting is something you wrote in the book that scent can, quote, perpetuate sanctity through time as well as space. And In some ways, we've talked about that a little bit in terms of scent memory and temples, but could you tell us kind of how all these things come together?
0: Sure. So we see a very deliberate curation of religious spaces and occasions through scent, um, both in the private sphere and in public so uh, in public, we've talked about temples as sort of destinations that Greeks and Romans would go to, um, where they're full of the scent of incense and roasting meat uh, from sacrificial animals. And like the ancients really wanted their sanctuaries to smell nice. Um, they'd be full of greenery and uh, often plants growing on the temple grounds. But we also, like we even hear about a temple in which the plaster that the temple is covered with is filled with saffron to try to infuse the temple presumably with um, a, a scent just emanating from the building itself. Um, on the more private side, or you know, a little bit more to say about public here, um, this this sort of goes beyond the temple grounds itself, where on religious occasions, festivals, parades, um, you get people deliberately sort of carving out a ritual space with scent. So as part of a profession, uh, sorry, as part of a procession, um, people will, for example, carry incense burners and, you know, that smoke and the the scent of the incense um, will be, you know, drawing out the root of the procession. Um, and very often these processions would have made a, a sort of a circuit around an area like a, the city walls or, or an individual person's farm that they're trying to protect with the effect of whatever ceremony they're doing, um, whether it's for the crops or for you know, the health of the city or to honor a particular god. You're um, sort of drawing that boundary, both visually and with your nose, by, um, by really creating this bubble of incensed space as part of the festival. And we see the magicians of the papyri do this as well, where they use scent a lot. Um, it, it's hard to overemphasize just how much they are trying to scent the spaces in which they are um, doing their rituals. So they're burning incense. They are often um, they often need a fire going as part of their uh, ritual procedure, and they'll burn scented wood like cedar on that. They're using perfume both to cover themselves and just sort of pouring it out to scent their environment. They're chewing on spices to perfume their breath. They're even writing with ink scented with myrrh or other ingredients. Um, so they're really sort of creating this little bubble for themselves um, of scented space. And I think you know, part of that is like you're you're driving out the sense of everyday life. you're creating this little um, space and time that feels removed from your everyday life uh, and in which it, it, there's a lot of work actually on how scent can alter our perception of reality and um you know how how it alters our mindset. And I think the magicians of the papyri are doing this very deliberately to sort of you know step out of themselves into this space where a beating with a god or a magical effect feels more possible to them. Um, and so uh, the ancients are very, very deliberately creating these spaces and times, both at the, the level of whole communities and sometimes you know, just for themselves in private rituals to um, really create ritual moments.
1: Huh. Fascinating, Um, especially kind of seeing the scent being used on all the different levels of the space, of the ink, of the breath, kind of it really gives this sense of just how pervasive um, scent was when we think about ancient magic. Um, I really only have one final question. You've, You've taken us brilliantly through ancient magic and how it thought about and used scent in these different contexts, these different kinds of magic practitioners. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it has to do with scent, magic, or books? (laughs)
0: Um, Unfortunately, I've gotten out of academia recently, but uh, I don't know. I I had a book that I was hoping to write on ancient agriculture and uh, sort of how people perform agriculture in a public fashion as part of, for example, a a politician creating reputation for himself. And on the more magical side of things, I have this article that I really want to write on uh, ancient curses on trees, which is a larger, larger genre than you might think um talking about agricultural magic um there's actually this this large number of Um, curses that people make against trees, not because they dislike the tree, but because they want it to be more productive. So I'll I'll end with one of my favorite spells from all of antiquity, which uh, it comes to us from the 10th century agricultural manual from Byzantium called the Geoponica. And it says that if you have a nut tree that is not producing nuts, then what you do is you take an axe in your hand And you go running up to the tree as if you're going to cut it down. But you have previously arranged with a friend to sort of run into the scene from the wings and catch your arm and say, no, no, the tree understands what it's done wrong. I will make myself responsible for the behavior. Uh, I'm sure the tree will behave much better from now on and and the tree (laughs) will be ashamed and start producing for you.
1: Okay. All right. Well, those are some very entertaining and fascinating thoughts to leave us with. So thank you very much. Um, The book that we've been discussing again is titled The Scent of Ancient Magic from the University of Michigan Press. Bridget, thank you so much for sharing your expertise
0: with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation.